0: Uh, This morning I'm going to be preaching from 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3. So if you'd like a Bible, put your hand up, we have some at the back, Arby will get you one, otherwise it should be on the screen, Uh, if you're using your phone we use the ESV translation, the ESV translation and uh, if you're new and visiting, uh, we just finished a really long series on Matthew uh, and uh, now we're about to start a new series on Peter when we get back from retreat. But this message today is going to be a bit of a different message, a bit of an odd message. I'm going to be preaching on deacons. Ooh, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm sure you probably weren't thinking, just what my soul needed this morning was a message on deacons. Uh, however, uh, it is going to be something that will help our church. And it's uh, a way that I wanted to set a foundation for how we're going to go about structuring our church in the future. Uh, and so if you'd like a title for today's message, it's Deacons. I have a subtitle, uh, How They Serve and Strengthen the Church. Deacons, How They Serve and Strengthen the Church. Let me read from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless their wives likewise must be dignified not slanderers but sober-minded faithful in all things let deacons each be the husband of one wife managing their children and their own households well for those who serve well as deacons gain a good, un, a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, may you bless the reading and preaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. We're at a church plant started nearly three years ago. And one of the questions that's constantly on my mind as the, the only pastor of the church, though I do have a great team of um, key leaders, core team guys around me, is how do we best structure the church? How do we best organise it? There's certain things which are obvious to do as a church. You know, you preach a sermon, you sing songs, you pray, things like that. But how else, how do we, how do we go about organising and structuring the church? Last week, we preached from Matthew 28, as Scott mentioned, as we were singing the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples. And as you go about making disciples and people come and join the church and become Christians and you seek to disciple them into maturity, how do you structure these churches that Jesus told us to go out and plant? That Jesus promised that he will build and the gates of hell will not prevail against them. How do we organize that? How do we get it done? Now, In this realm, you might not have dipped into this realm, but the church leadership realm, there's literally thousands, and I wouldn't be surprised if there was at least 100,000 books out there on church management and growth. Most of them are basically baptised business books. So you take business principles, bat them in the holy water, and now they're church principles, promising, in a lot of times, short-term rewards, quick growth by simple changes. If you just do what we did, then you'll have XYZ church. Or on the flip side, there's the radically simple church, which is like, just don't have any structure, just let the Spirit lead. Uh, but the reality is, is uh, with the business side, a church, it's not a business. It's not. I mean, it's an organisation in a sense, because we're organised to do something. And there is often transferable wisdom from the business world and, and God's common grace that helps in the organisational world to help churches structure well. But people are not prophets. Uh, members are not customers, and we're, we're called blood-bought sheep. We're, we're lost sheep that are found by the great shepherd who shed his own blood to bring us into his kingdom. Now uh, the church is different. It, it's, it's not the same type of organization. The dominant image throughout the whole Bible for the people of God is agricultural. Not, not even this kind of big organization, but sheep being shepherded. <laughs> it's very basic. We don't offer products as a church. We offer the words of eternal life. We're not called to beat our competitors, but to serve them and pray for them and ask that they would succeed. It's, it's a different entity. And so as I was trying to think about how do we best structure and lead our church, it, it led me to this idea of deacons. You might have had varying different backgrounds with that word. You might never have heard that word until this morning. Uh, And it led me to a book, which I'll get a picture up. uh, In April 21, I picked up a book called Deacons, How They Serve and Strengthen the Church, which is where I stole the subtitle, uh, actually the whole title of my sermon from, and it gripped me from the first sentence. The author, Matt Smethurst, says this. The Nazis, it turns out, did not like deacons. I stopped. I was like, Maddie, you've got to listen to this first sentence. I just thought, that's a great way to open a book on deacons. The Nazis, it turns out, did not like deacons. All right, now you got me. Why? Well, after the Netherlands fell, which is my grandfather's home country, to Germany in 1940, deacons in the Dutch Reformed Church rose up to care for the politically oppressed supplying food and providing secret refuge. Realising what was happening, the Germans decreed that the office of deacon should be eliminated. Responding in a general synod, which is like where all the pastors gather together, on July 17, 1941, the Dutch believers resolved, whoever touches the diaconate interferes with what Christ has ordained as the task of the church. Whoever lays hands on diaconia—that's deacons—lays hands on worship. Okay, that's a bold opening paragraph. Probably way more interest in the topic of deacons than I'd ever had. Dangerous enough that the Nazis would shut them down. So, got me thinking. So then I organised a Zoom chat with Brian Chesmore. Um, I got a photo of Brian up there as well because. Beaches. he he's, he's an awesome guy. He's the executive pastor of Southern Grace Church, Louisville, which is where I was for a year, where I studied at Pastors College. And they have an amazing church there, about five, 600 members. And he pretty much runs the church, basically. And he does such a great job, but it's so low-key and so simple. It doesn't feel like this business. It feels like a church of, it feels like our church, but just 10 times the size. And I wanted to meet with him and ask him, how do you do it? Like, How do you, how do you run a church? How do you organise it? And uh, the only time he could do was on a Thursday night um, at 11pm my time. But I was like, okay, I'm going to get some time with Brian. So I finished life group and then went out to my office, opened up my Zoom. And I put to him all the ideas I had about how I think I could run a church and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he said, yeah, that, that, that's good. That, that's, a great, that's a great plan. You can do that. But then he said... If there's one thing you could do to best structure your church for long-term health and stability, I want you to give serious attention to, you guessed it, deacons. If there's one thing you could do, establish deacons, appoint deacons, and get the deacons into your church. And my reaction might be a bit like yours too, it's like, deacons? (laughs) Deacons? Not quite the church growth uh, strategy I was looking for. Uh, But it sent me on more of a study trail. I actually went and read the rest of that book. And I got the core team, the guys who in some way serve as a deacon already. Um, And we all read that book. We listened to a sermon by Jeff Perswell. Uh, We got the wives to listen to it as well, just to gain a theological understanding. Because it's not really in my background. I grew up in an Anglican church and deacons in the Anglican church is kind of like your stepping stone to becoming a real minister Uh, and so it's sort of not I've never seen it practiced we met as a core team in January and we decided yeah let's do it let's establish deacon let's let's go for it and then 2022 hit and we got a we changed venues we had retreat we had so much happen (laughs) and I had to park it and we just weren't able to put it in to practice but I parked it at the very time we as a church probably needed deacons more than ever. Needed that clarity, needed that role. And so here we are, <laughs> six months after that, ready to restart it and get it going. My aim this morning, and uh, for all of us, is that we would have a biblical perspective of what deacons are. Where the office came from, how it's meant to function, um, and who is meant to be involved in it. Matt Smether says in his book... Show me a church with distracted pastors and a derailed mission, and I will show you a church without effective deacons. I read that line. I was like, yeah, that's not us by God's grace. But if we were to continue to grow, (laughs) I think we could head down that line. I am easily distracted, as you might know. And I do not want the mission of God to be derailed. So I'm leaning in to deacons. So this morning, my hope is that we would see how deacons serve and strengthen the local church and how we can establish deacons here in our church so that we can protect the mission, so that we can make disciples of all the nations for the glory of God. I've got three simple points for us this morning. The origin of deacons, where did they come from? The duties of deacons, what do they do? And the qualifications of deacons. Who must they be? So let's jump in. Point number one: the origin of deacons. Where did they come from? In his book, Matt Smithers says, "If you've put your trust in Christ, you were already a deacon in a broad sense." That's good news. So everyone here, if you're a Christian, you're a deacon. You just got promoted." <laughs> in a sense. Uh, The Greek noun diakonos appears 29 times in the New Testament, that's where we get the word deacon, and is almost always translated servants or ministers. Uh, Here are a few examples from the Gospels rendered literally. The greatest among you shall be your deacon. In Mark 9, Jesus said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a deacon of all, or a servant of all. So everyone's a deacon. But that being said, the church did develop a formal office of deacons to distinguish it from the general sense that we're all servants. And so how did we get there? Well, we're going to do a bit of a story time. So if you've got your Bible, just turn to Act 6 and hold it there. And I want to tell you what happened between the Great Commission and Acts chapter 6. So Jesus dies on the cross in the greatest and darkest day of history, but the greatest day of history in Matthew 27. he All of our sin is placed on him. His blood is shed, we're forgiven, it's paid for, it is finished, which if you're new to church, you need to hear that. That's the most important thing. Don't worry about deacons, just think about Jesus' death on the cross and that all your sins are forgiven if you trust in him. That happens. Three days later, he rises from the dead. Then he appears to his disciples, gives them the great commission, tells them to wait. They go to Jerusalem. They wait 40 days or after a certain amount of time, 10 days rather, they're meeting, they're praying. There's now 120 of them in a room and the Holy Spirit descends upon them. So Jesus said, Behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. How did he enact that? He gave them his Holy Spirit. The the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. Visually, it looked like they had tongues of fire above their heads. They go out in boldness into the streets and start preaching the gospel. They start making disciples, obeying the word. These cowardly disciples become courageous disciple makers because God is with them in the power of the Holy Spirit thousands become Christians, thousands of Jewish people become Christians, those from all the different areas, because the time was Pentecost. And at Pentecost, people would travel from all the diaspora, all the spread out lands where all the Jewish people had immigrated, and they would come back to Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. And while they were there, they heard about the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, convicted of their sins, they repent, they're baptised, and then suddenly the church goes from 120 to 5,000. And it's not just 5,000 locals, it's 5,000 pilgrims. They gather, they meet, they continue to preach the gospel, the apostles get arrested, they get break free of jail, the church gathers, meets, everyone's selling their land to start paying for people. Uh, it's this crazy, beautiful expression of Christ's love. It would, have been, it would have been awesome and chaotic. Anyone that wants to go back to like, the early church, you're like, okay awesome, but chaotic. You could end up in prison. You could be killed. Do you really want it? Uh, it's not just all sitting around in house churches eating bread. It was, it was full on. But then this problem arose. You've got thousands of people just become Christians. They've left their homeland. They've stayed in Jerusalem. So they went on a pilgrimage and never went back. The church is swollen. And now you've got this difference between people who are Jewish by nation and heritage and blood and who live there and people who are kind of pilgrim Jews, um, Hellenists, the Acts chapter 6 passage tells us. And there's this moment in early church where the entire thing could have been shipwrecked. The entire thing could have been divided and the whole church could have split. And that's where we are in Acts chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that is Greek-speaking Jews, those who weren't brought up in Jerusalem, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily diacona, the daily distribution, in the daily service. So what they did was they established for all the widows who didn't have money, they didn't have link, they were dependent on their daily food from this charitable organisation of the early church. But the problem was is that whether it was ill intent, accidental, the the Jewish widows were getting fed first, and then by the time they got to all the Greek-speaking Jewish widows, they were being left out. And so, as you can imagine, there was this, you know, people rising up saying, hey, this is not right. Our our widows are missing out. We're putting all this money in. What's going on? And it could have been a massive opportunity, as I said, for the church to split into two, the Jewish and the non-Jewish or the the spread-out Jews. So how does the Holy Spirit lead the church? Well, we're going to see how he establishes the diaconate or the deacons in seed form. Verse 2, "...the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve diaconeo, that's the verb form of deacon, to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom." whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry or the diaconia of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. This was not the establishment of a formal office of deacon, but it is the prototype, the blueprints, the seed form, from which an an official office developed in the church. And in this passage, we see just how useful this designation is. A A number of foundational elements are introduced Firstly, the the church needs shock absorbers. Okay, you you know your car, you got your suspension. You go over those speed humps, and if you're smart, you slow down and you go over them slowly. But if you don't see it and you go really quick, if you had no suspension, your car would just break apart. Your wheels and everything would be bent out of shape. But if you've got suspension shock absorbers in, you can oh, you can hit the shock, and although it, you're like whoa, I, that came out of nowhere. Uh, you can actually absorb it and it doesn't derail your whole mission. Well, to avoid a church split, uh, they appoint these seven men full of the Spirit to be these shock absorbers, to go into this sticky, messy situation and figure out a problem so that we don't have a division in the church. So we see even in the early church, problems were there. If you have this idyllic vision of the early church, no, there were problems. They needed shock absorbers. So they set aside the seven to do it. Secondly, the early church needed a division of labor. There you go, that's a good business term. Division of labor. Uh, The apostles recognized that they are finite in their ability and their time. And so they split the work into two realms, spiritual and temporal, spiritual and material. The apostles recognized that they were uniquely gifted and tasked by the risen Lord Jesus Christ to pray and to preach, to preach and to pray. No one else could do it in the same way that they could. And so they recognise if, if we do this, serving the tables, which is really good work to do, we can't do this. So we have to do this, and that means we can't do that, but that has to get done, so we need people to do it. So they set aside the seven to do the really important work. It's not less lesser or you're not unimportant it is different in importance and so they divide the labor we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word matt smether says it like this a church without deacons may lack health but a church without biblical preaching cannot exist you take away the faithful preaching of God's word and the clear declaration of it throughout the life of the church. You don't have a church anymore. You've got some other club that calls itself a church. But unless it's true to the word, it's no longer a faithful, true church. So you can survive without deacons. You cannot survive without true preaching. And so the apostles recognised the ultimate importance of the preaching of the word and prayer, interceding for people, caring for people through lifting their name before the God of heaven and before the throne room. And the third thing we see, so they needed shock absorbers, they needed division of labour. The church requires certain qualities of its leaders. They didn't choose the best business men or women. They chose, verse 3, men of good repute. They have a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit. You might think full of the Holy Spirit to give out food to widows and full of wisdom. They had qualities they needed. They needed men they could trust, men that could look at this problem and come up with a solution that was led by the Holy Spirit so that it wasn't just human and material. So they were doing a, a temporal thing. They're serving the material needs, but they're doing it by the power that God supplies so that God would get the glory alone. And they needed wisdom, the ability to make decisions in the grey, to be prudent, to to be wise, to know how to best win over all the various interest groups and things like that. And notice that they actually chose seven men with Greek names. They didn't actually choose Hebrew men, they chose Greek-speaking men. And whether or not they were in charge of all the distribution for all the widows, Hebrew and Greek, or just the Greek, we don't know... But nonetheless, we see that they have a multi ethnic leadership team now. And what's the result? Look at verse 7. Luke, who wrote this, doesn't want us to see, doesn't want us to miss seeing this. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Matt Smeta says this Acts chapter 6, verse 1 to 7 isn't simply a paradigm for diaconal service, it's also a reminder that the work of deacons, though often focused on physical and administrative need, has enormous spiritual implications. There's an inseparable link between the labor of a deacon and the flourishing of the word. Inseparable link between the labor of a deacon the flourishing of the word. That's how that verse functions. It's there to help us see that division led to gospel growth, the word of God abounding. It's about AD 30. By AD 61, when Paul writes to the Philippians, we see that this seed form of an office has become more formal. 1 Timothy 3, what we read earlier, is an example of that as well. Look at Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy servants of christ jesus to all the saints in christ jesus who are at philippi with the overseers elders and deacons so now you've got the elders the deacons the congregation Officers have developed formal structure has been put into this informal church Again, if you want to just keep going back to the early church, thinking we don't need structure, we don't need, you know, organization, we don't need that. Well, was like, well, they did. So if you want to be like the early church, they split into structure, they formalized. Why? So that the Word of God can continue to abound. So that the most important isn't shadowed by still important tasks, but those of lesser importance. All right, so that's the origin where did deacons come from? Well, that's the seedbed right there. That was good for the early church, but what role do deacons have now? That leads us to point number two, the duties of deacons. What do they do? It's a varied congregation. I'm not sure what your experience of deacons has been. I shared a little bit about mine um, never really knew what the term was, just thought it was a Southern Baptist thing. Uh, Southern Baptist churches seem to talk about it a lot from my reading. Perhaps you've seen a great expression of deacons. Or maybe you've seen a really unhealthy expression. In his book, he, he kind of gives these little um, lame-ish versions of, of uh, what you might have seen. You might have seen, Pastor in Training Peter. Uh, That's the deacon like I saw, deacon as a stepping stone to becoming a minister. You might have seen Toolbox Terence. He's a deacon in the church because he's handy. He knows what to do, and so they make him a deacon. Spreadsheet Sam. Uh, Deacon because he's financially savvy. He knows his way around the calculator, and he's good with numbers, so let's make him a deacon. Corporate Cliff. A deacon because he's good at management. He's successful in the business world. So let's get him onto the church deacon board so that he can make this church successful. Well, you might have seen Vito Vinny. Vito Vinny. A deacon because he wants, he's he's a deacon to keep the elders accountable. He vetoes things. He's like, okay, the elders want to do this. Well, I don't trust you guys. My instinct is no. (laughs) That's Vito Vinny. And then you might have seen pseudo elder Steve. Pseudo-elder, so the deacon who actually acts like he's an elder, ruling and uh, ruling over the church. What we need is a biblical understanding. So let's look at, if you flick back now to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you'll see verses 1 through 7 in your Bible probably says something like qualifications for overseers. Verses 8 through 13 says qualifications for deacons. And then verse 14, the Apostle Paul says this, directly following, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you, that's Timothy, his younger apprentice, so that, so all this instruction that's come before, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So I'm giving you these structures so that you can structure the churches in my absence. And what is this church? Well, it's the church of the living God, not a business, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You see, what's at stake is the truth of the word of God. I want to best order the churches with elders and deacons so that the church will be a pillar of the truth. What do pillars do? They hold things up. So holding up the truth through right structure, that's what elders and deacons do, and a buttress, the front of a wall, to protect the truth. So by rightly ordering and structuring a church, we uphold the truth, the Word of God goes forth, and we protect the truth from error, from immorality. That's what Paul's intent is. And so he establishes and and makes sure that Timothy goes throughout Ephesus and the other churches appointing overseers, elders, pastors, all the same word group, bishop, whatever you call it, it all means the same thing, and deacons. Now, if you read through the New Testament, there's actually a lot on what it means to be a pastor. It's a clearly defined role. You can put it all together and it's easier to see. Pastors are called to lead the church. Pastors are called to feed the church. Pastors are called to care for the church, to serve the church, to equip the saints in the church for the works of ministry and to protect the church. That's what elders, pastors, overseers are meant to do. But deacons, other than Acts 6, there's there's no description as to what they're meant to do. There's no one-liner even. And Acts 6 isn't even the formal office of deacon. so (laughs) what are we meant to do? Well, the way I look at it is I think perhaps that there's intentionality in that. That If you look, the clue is in the word deacon. It's a common word which just means servant, someone who serves, someone who is appointed to serve other people. And so elders rule and govern the church. That's their job. And deacons, well, deacons, deacons serve at the leadership and in the structure and in the way that the elders would like them to. So rather than defining in Holy Scripture what, the, for one church what deacons ought to do, it's, it's probably left open so that in each church with various needs, uh, the, the needs for deacons at Sovereign Grace Church, Parramatta is different to Sovereign Grace Church, Warunga, different to Sovereign Grace Church, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. There's breadth there. So the clue is in the word deacon and the clue is in the passages too. If you study verses one through seven, You'll see the qualification for elders. You study the rest of the Bible, like I said, you'll see what elders are called to do. And if you compare it to the qualifications for deacons that I read in verse 8 to 13, you'll notice that there's omissions. Deacons are not called to be able to teach. That's not a requirement of a deacon. Pastors, elders are called to be able to teach, to preach the word of God like the apostle said, preach and pray. Uh, deacons are also not called to rule or govern the church anywhere in Scripture. And so we have a a division. Elders lead and rule and deacons serve. And so the clue is in the title, the clue is in what's omitted from um, what's in Scripture. And so what are deacons then? (laughs) If we don't have much to go on, well, the best definition I came across was from a theologian called Alexander Strout. And he says this, deacons are formal assistants to the elders. That's one way. So when you think deacons, think formal assistants to the elders. Everyone in the church is a deacon, but there are some who are set apart by the elders to be their formal assistants, to help the church go forward in practical and temporal and material ways so that the elders can ensure that the preaching and the prayers are protected formal assistance to the elders. You could say that they, in a sense, they help execute the vision of pastors or the elders by serving the church in practical matters through mobilising and stabilising the saints of the church. They help to execute the vision of the elders by serving the church in practical matters through mobilising and stabilising the saints. Deacons are meant to be men, and I'll also argue women uh, in a moment, who are constantly thinking, how can I best serve my local church? How can I best help the elders to make sure that we're a church knowing, applying, proclaiming the glorious gospel? They're constantly thinking about possible needs, possible hurts and divisions and they're looking to see what's not working, not so that they can complain about it or critique it, but so they can solve the problem so the Word of God goes forth. That's, that's how deacons are meant to see themselves. Matt Smithers says in a similar sentence, a church without biblically functioning deacons will be perpetually distracted from its central mission of making disciples. Another way of thinking about it is how Jamie Dunlop has put it. Elders lead ministry. Deacons facilitate ministry. And that word ministry means serving. The congregation does ministry. Now, in a business mindset, we would think we pay the pastor to do the work. But actually, in a biblical mindset, my job is to preach the word and equip the saints for the works of ministry. Elders lead. Deacons facilitate. Congregation does. Mark Dever makes it, hopefully, maybe this will clarify. If the elders say, let's drive to Pittsburgh, it's not up to the deacons to come back and say, no, let's drive to Philadelphia instead. They can legitimately come back and say, well, our engine won't get us to Pittsburgh, perhaps we should reconsider, and that's very helpful. But in general, their job is to support the destination set by the elders. You see that dynamic? So they to serve the church and like, okay, Riley, you, you want to do all these things? Ha <laughs> ha, great. Um, okay, you feel God, called by God to put on all these programs. Wonderful. We're going to have six months of fasting. Interesting. Uh, okay. Um, just let you know that generally people have to eat, um, otherwise they die. Uh, and generally people have to sleep, otherwise they also die. And they have to drink water, otherwise they die. So perhaps... Maybe your vision for the six-month fast could include periods where we eat and drink and sleep. (laughs) That's how how one-way deacons could serve uh, in in various other ways. So for our church, let me suggest three things that our deacons could and should do. Number one, spot and meet tangible needs within the church. Spot and meet tangible needs. That is... Mercy needs. And many people have already done that. They've said there's no ramp to get into this building. So anyone that would like to come that's not physically able can't come in unless we pick them up, you know, etc., which is an option. But physical, tangible needs, hospitality, venue concerns, rostering and finances, all those type of things, spotting and meeting tangible needs within the church... Secondly, promoting and protecting church unity. We saw in Acts chapter 6 that that's what the deacons did, that the prototype, that they were shock absorbers to keep the church unified. Deacons can step into contentious issues and as members of the church, ensure the ministry of the gospel is protected, that division is diminished. Diminished. It might involve being proactive, getting to an issue before it becomes one by seeing that, hey, if if we do this, this will make these people feel like this. Have you considered that? Or it might be reactive. Hey, there's an issue that's occurring. How about I'll step in and I'll go speak to them and and I'll help figure a solution for that out so that we don't have division. So spotting and meeting needs, promoting and protecting church unity. And I like what um, Matt Smithers says, which is a hard word to keep saying, Smethurst. I should have given him a nickname. Anyway, Smetto. <laughs> Role specific ministry mobilizers. Role specific ministry mobilizers. That's another way they could serve. So by coordinating and running specific ministries or programs. Now, let me give you an example of what this looks like. At the end of his book, Smedo has some testimonies that come in from around the world, and I chose one from China. Here's a story. "'I pastor an underground church in China, "'and on the Lord's Day we gather for worship "'in a rented hotel ballroom. "'For a while our home groups were assigned "'on a rotating basis to arrive early and stay late, "'setting up before the service and cleaning up afterwards.'" "'Sounds similar.'" Uh, responsibility also included preparing the elements for the Lord's Supper, welcoming new people. So complaints arose, however, for understandable reasons. First, not every member belongs to a home group, which meant some members were never assigned to serve. Second, it's not easy for families with young children to arrive early or leave late. And besides, the kids would often make things messier while everyone else cleaned. Preach. All of this led to some single members feeling frustrated some single members right <laughs> feeling frustrated because they ended up doing most of the work. I should also mention we didn't have money to hire a cleaning person, nor would it have been wise to do so for security reasons. Eventually it became clear it was not feasible to continue this home group rotation system. So we decided to establish a decomposition to solve this problem we installed a qualified brother into this facility and hospitality role and asked him to develop a plan to solve the problem. He soon presented his plan to our church's leaders and we approved it. The new system under diaconal leadership is a great improvement. All the members know their responsibilities and have been encouraged to love one another more and to better care for families with young kids. For the elders, it's been an excellent opportunity to teach the congregation about sacrifice, love and faithfulness. So often a deacon's job is to diminish conflict in the church. The best ones, I believe, do crucial work with no dramatic highlights. I'm so grateful that God has used deacons in our church to help our people grow. So there's a good example in underground China, how deacons function. So that's what a deacons do? Formal assistance to the elders to help facilitate ministry, spotting problems, absorbing shocks and quelling problems. Uh, and mobilizing the saints for ministry in various ways. So that leads us to the final point, point number three, the qualifications of deacons. Who must they be? So you might be wondering, am am I a deacon? Should I I be a deacon? Well, it's interesting that if you look at verses 8 to 13, and, and you note what I said previously... Paul is far more concerned with who deacons are than what they do. This is the defining characteristic of leadership in the Christian church is it's a character-based qualification before it's competency-based. Character comes first and then your skills and your competency. And so Paul addresses his attention not so much to what deacons do but the type of person that they ought to be. Their their character is paramount. We must have the right type of person in the role, otherwise they'll just make things worse. And so Paul outlines the type of person that we should be looking for in our church to be a deacon. So let's look through verses 8 to 13, our text for this morning, just briefly, don't worry. Verse 8, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. The deacon should be a dignified person. They, they should have a certain level of respect. They should be honoured amongst the congregation outside of their title, but just for who they are. And Paul notes in, in a summary form that really they ought to be someone who's self-controlled, not... Their tongue doesn't wag easily. They're not drinking too much. They're in control of their appetites, their financial appetites also. They're likely going to be involved with money and making decisions and, and all those type of things, so they need to be in self-control of their desires. Verse nine: they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What what Paul means there, I think, is that they must understand and know the gospel. Uh, Deacons aren't meant to just be people who know how to get stuff done, but they're theologically informed. They they love Christ. That's why our our mission statement as a church is church passion about knowing the gospel. Deacons aren't exempt from knowing the gospel ever more deeply. Um, If you want to be deacon or you're looking who should be deacon in our church, it's someone who... Reads the Word, studies the Word, knows the Word, knows Christ himself. Doesn't just know theology, but knows Jesus himself, loves Christ. They hold the mystery of their faith with a clear conscience. That means that they aren't ruined by perpetual falling into sins that ruin their integrity and their conscience. They don't have a wounded conscience because they're falling into scandalous sin all the time. That's why Paul says in verse 10... Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So there's a trial and error period. You know, it's, let's see. Let's see what they're like just in their normal life. In a sense, deacons choose themselves. You don't need to appoint them. Like you're probably already thinking of people in the church. You're like, oh, yeah, it's them. They're a deacon. They're already proven themselves, they're already blameless. That is, there's no obvious outrageous sin that dominates their life they're not sinless but they're blameless you can't be like yeah they're constantly doing this and they just won't change verse 11 their wives likewise must be dignified not slanderers but sober-minded faithful in all things now, this is where it gets a bit more contentious and tricky. It's highly contested, this verse, as to what it actually means. In the original Greek, the word is just the generic word for women. It can be translated wife. Uh, there is no possessive pronoun, their wives. That's supplied by the ESV. So you could read the, the verse literally as, where is it? Women, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers. Okay, so the context has to determine what Paul is talking about. I believe it's permissible, and I'm comfortable with actually this referring to women who serve as deacons or wives of deacons, but basically serving as deacons. I don't believe that the the role of deacons is reserved only uh, for males, although some churches in our Sovereign Grace Churches movement would believe that. I don't, I'm comfortable with an open diaconate uh, because the role of a deacon doesn't overlap with the role of the pastors. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, which you might walk out if you, you know, <laughs> just read this in isolation, but if, if this verse troubles you, come and talk to me afterwards and I'll explain what it means. Paul says, just a chapter before, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man... Rather, she is to remain quiet. There's a lot we could say about that, but in short, Paul's saying women can't be elders because elders are called to preach and to govern and lead the church. But the role of a deacon isn't to teach or to govern the church. It's to be a formal servant, a formal slave, if you like. Uh, And so both men and women, I believe, are able to serve in that way if they serve in a way which corresponds to God's design for their gender. So male deacons serve like males deacons and female deacons serve like female deacons. We still uphold God's pattern for gender all throughout from Genesis 1 through to Revelation. It's the same picture, a beautiful picture of complementarity, a way in both equal, men and women have equal value and dignity and worth, but different roles in the local church and in the home. Roles that are established by God and in our day and age, it's a very controversial thing to say, and I understand if you don't like it, that's okay. Um, you can, let, let's have a conversation about it. You don't have to be on board with that right this very second, but I'm just explaining what I think the Bible says about it and how I teach it in this church. And so, if a woman is to serve as a deacon, like Romans 16.1 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon or a servant of the church at St. well, what are they meant to be like? Well, verse 11... Women deacons are to be almost the same categories. Dignified, not slanderous, sober-minded, faithful in all things. Paul then goes on to speak to the men again. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. That is, they are one-woman men. Literally don't have multiple wives and don't have their eyes on multiple women. And it is a good test. Are they able to manage their home? Same for pastors and deacons. The way to see can they manage the church is can they manage the home? Look at their family. Look at their kids. That's the test. So what should we look for in a deacon? Smeadow says this. If you want to find a qualified deacon... Don't look at his garage to see how many tools he has. Don't look at his financial portfolio to see how many investments he has. Don't look at his company to see how many employees he has. Look first at his attitude, his character, his life. Is he eager to listen or is he angling to be heard? Is he humble and flexible or does he always insist on his own way? Does he covet status or does he yearn to serve? That's what we're to look for. And then verse 13, and in some ways, this is the most motivating verse in the whole section for why I actually want to formally do deacons in our church. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I believe that there is a a blessing that goes along with the formal serving as a deacon. Paul says those who serve well gain a good standing. Literally, you, you, you do gain a reputation. You ought not to do it for reputation, but you will gain a good one because you will be like Christ in the church, serving, laying down your life, washing feet like Christ washed feet, doing like in no other part of the world would slaves be given good standing especially not when Paul was writing this. The lowest of the low were deacons, slaves. But Paul's saying, no, no, in the church of Jesus Christ, which is different to the world, if you serve and serve and serve, you you will gain a good standing. And those who serve most formally as deacons, that's what they will receive. It ought not to be the primary motivation, but it, it can be a benefit, a joy. But even better than that, And they will gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I think what Paul is saying there is that by uniquely setting aside your life to say, I'm going to be a deacon, I'm going to be a a servant like Christ is a servant, you're now coming closer and closer to Christ's call on your life to be a slave of all. And so you gain greater confidence of the faith you have in Christ because you are living like Christ has called you to live. There's an integrity. You read the verses that say, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And you're like, yeah, by God's grace, I'm doing that. I'm called to do that. I'm consistently doing that. Now, our standing with God is not determined by how we serve. It's determined by our faith in Christ. But the fruit of our life does help us to confirm our faith and go, oh, yeah, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm doing this from a joyful and loving heart. And so I believe that setting aside deacons will, will be a blessing to them, if done right. And, that, and that's the ultimate blessing, even if we never gave anyone the formal title. And even if you, you, know, you sense, oh, maybe I want to be a deacon, you're not chosen or you're not appointed or you do it for a season, we no longer need a deacon of that anymore and we take it away. And for all of us, the greatest thing we can do in our lives is to be deacons, ordinary deacons. Because by doing that, we're modelling our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Mark 10, 42. Jesus called them, that is disciples, to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, diaconos. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, using that deacon word again, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now that's the one we're modeling and imitating. Yet none of our diaconal service, none of our serving in the local church could ever compare to Christ's serving. Our serving is made possible because he first served us. Outside of Christ, we want to serve ourselves. Outside of Christ, we care about our finances and, and our well-being and our bellies and our lives and careers and fortunes. But when Jesus died on the cross and we died with him by putting our faith in him, the old part of us died with him. And a new man, a new woman was birthed and we're born again. And because of the great work of the cross, we can be set free to be these servants. So although we serve like Christ, we could never serve in the way that Christ served us, dying for us. His service makes it all possible. And therefore, He deserves all the glory for all the serving we do and all the serving anyone in our church ever does. Because it all points back to Him. He made it possible. So, putting it all together, we've seen the origin of deacons. Acts chapter 6 gives us a pattern. Where did they come from? They came from there to divide the labour, to be shock absorbers. We saw that quality and character matters. We've seen the duty of deacons, that they're called to be formal assistance to the elders, male or female, to serve in a way that helps the Word of God to be protected and promoted. And we've seen the qualifications of deacons. Dignified, upright, self-controlled, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, managing their home well, so that our beautiful little local church here can be a force for good in the world. This is why we want to establish deacons, is so that we can be structured best so that the people of God are best served. The Word of God is preached clearly. People are prayed for consistently. The needs, the the real needs that people have in our church and those who aren't yet a part of our church have will be met consistently because if it was up to me to meet all the needs, uh, if you've known me for more than three and a half minutes, you realize I can't. (laughs) I'm not very competent. I'm not very organized. I'm not very consistent. And so praise God that we will develop deacons who will be those type of people so that they'll complement my weaknesses so that we will have a more Christ-honoring and exalting local church. Let's pray. Lord, I pray and ask that you would establish deacons in our church to serve and strengthen our local church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.